Today's episode is part of Dell Technologies Small Business Podference, a conference via an all-star lineup of podcasters to share advice and strategies for your business. Check out the other podcasts at DellTechnologiesPodference.com. Welcome to the next chapter. I'm your host, Prim Saripapat. As many of you know, my show is about how athletes transition away from sport. But today, we're going to expand that focus and examine the intersection between sports and the business world, specifically the commonalities that exist between athletes, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. There's actually a very close relationship because the next chapter for many athletes especially those who played at the professional level, often involves entrepreneurship and starting their own business, whether that's opening up their own restaurant or real estate firm, investing in a startup, or launching their own clothing line. And just to give you a little more backdrop as to why I'm doing this, today's episode is being featured in the first ever Dell Technologies Podference, get it? Instead of a conference, it's Podference because all the podcasts. (laughs) Anyways, you get it. Basically, they're replacing what would have been an in-person small business conference with a collection of custom podcasts talking about a range of very important business-related topics. Some notable names who will be featured in this podference include award-winning writer and speaker Malcolm Gladwell, best-selling nonfiction author Michael Lewis. New York Times bestselling author of Girl, Wash Your Face, Rachel Hollis, and ESPN's Emmy Award-winning sports host, Tony Kornheiser. Now, for my episode, my hope is that you, the listener, are able to walk away with some really valuable business skills and strategies using sports as a vehicle, because I've always felt that sport is one of the greatest metaphors for life, and I think the concepts you'll hear in this episode are ones that are very versatile and can be applied to just about any industry, regardless of your role. So here's the rundown for today. You're going to hear from Forbes senior editor, Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, talk about his latest book, A-List Angels, How a Band of Actors, Artists, and Athletes Hacked Silicon Valley. Zach's going to shed light on how these two worlds between Hollywood and Silicon Valley collided and became unlikely partners as so many A-listers, including professional athletes, changed the face of Silicon Valley. Zach has covered media and entertainment at Forbes for over a decade now, covering some of the biggest names in music, sports, and entertainment. In addition to A-list angels, he's also written three other books, including Three Kings, Diddy, Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, and Hip-Hop's Multi-Billion Dollar Rise, and Michael Jackson, Inc., The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of the Billion Dollar Empire. After that, I'm going to speak with high-performance psychologist and longtime sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks, Dr. Michael Gervais, about the mental skills required to cut it as a leader within the business world. Dr. Gervais is also the co-founder of Compete to Create, an educational platform aimed at transforming individuals and organizations. Alongside Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll, together, the two have worked with a slew of reputable company giants, including Microsoft, Boeing, P&G, and Starbucks. But before we hear from Zach Greenberg and Dr. Michael Gervais, 
I wanted to share some really valuable insight from a few of the athletes I've gotten a chance to talk to over the last year. During that time, I've interviewed over 30 of the most successful athletes in the world talking about their transition away from sport and the strategies that help them achieve professional success in the business world and in their post-athletic lives. For former world number one and U.S. Open tennis champion Andy Roddick, the key for him was exploring other interests while he was playing. So by the time he left sport, he was immediately ready to jump into other things. So did you ever struggle with the idea of retiring. I did it the same day. I did it four hours after it came into my head, you know, five hours. And then that was it. And it was done. And it's like, what's, what are we going to do? What's next? Where am I, where are we going to apply time? I took a year and I was pretty lazy. And then it was kind of back, back into, you know, and I had other interests. I had started, you know, a real estate company and I was five years into that. So it was, there were other things going on. I, I think athletes make the mistake of retiring and then going, what now? As opposed to kind of building those blocks during their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was never a question of like what I was going to do afterwards. And so I didn't struggle with that. I didn't keep playing because there was nothing else there. You started your foundation mm-hmm. at 18. Yeah. That's really young. Mm-hmm. What was going through your mind about just planting the seeds for the future? How is that even possible? It's that even uh, for possible? me, like it's, I, I think, there's complicated issues can be treated very simply. It, for me, it was like, if I want to do business, it's okay. You know, with, with our commercial real estate company it was recession hit. We have liquid assets. How can I apply them? There has to be an opportunity here right now. Cause everyone wants kind of what we have, right? They want to get liquid and they want to have some flexibility as the economy is squeezing. It's like, how do we take advantage of it? And so it was a very simple question. We found a pretty simple answer and then you wait, 11 years and you look smart because you're, you know, halfway into 20 year leases with Starbucks and, you know, different companies. The foundation was the same thing. It's like, there has to be an opportunity to do something great. What tennis does not get enough credit for is, is, is the vacuum of, of culture, philanthropy, the absolute icons of our game, whether you're looking at Billie Jean King and what she's done for, for social change and Martina Navratilova coming out in, in the eighties. That wasn't a thing. That's crazy. That wasn't a thing. No. She doesn't get enough credit for what that took, no, especially at the peak of her career. Yeah. Uh, we've already discussed Andre, what he's done with an entire area of Las Vegas in, in, in his charter schools. Uh, Roger Federer being a lead ambassador for UNICEF and then graduating from that into building his own schools uh, in Africa. Uh, Arthur Ashe. Um, I mean, you just look at it's It's like the biggest people in our sports set the example of what you're supposed to do. Andy's transition from sport was pretty seamless, which isn't always the case for many athletes. Figuring out what you want to do and who you want to be after you've been an athlete for 15, 20, maybe 30 years, that's not an easy homework assignment and one that should not be rushed. That's one piece of advice former Duke and NBA player Gerald Henderson Jr. got from a business partner as he was making his transition from basketball. Don't rush. Don't write anything down in pen. Like Write everything down in pencil, Hmm. theoretically. Uh, Don't say, I'm going to do this right away or I'm going to do that right away. 
you know, give yourself some time to really find what is it that you have a passion for. Not something that you want to do, but like something that you actually love to do and have a, a real passion for because that's going to carry you. Just like as I had a, ba- a passion for basketball, that carried me for as long as it did. And I would have played longer had my health not gotten away. You know, if you, you're transitioning, like you don't have to make any decisions right away unless like financially that's something that you need to do. You know, take your time and find what it is. And for me, uh, it'll be the real estate stuff. I have a real passion for, for, for the real estate game. That would be my advice. If you don't have to, don't make any commitments to things right away because, you know, you, you put yourself in a position where you're doing something that you really don't want to be doing, you know, because because you're trying to stay busy or because it the opportunity presented itself, you know, and now you're stuck doing something that's not going to fulfill you. Write a whole bunch of stuff down on paper, dibble and dabble until you you got some time to really think about what it is that you want to uh, be doing every day. Figuring out your next passion in life requires a heavy dose of exploration and experimentation. But once you do figure out where you're headed next, it's just as important to recognize where you're starting, which is probably at the bottom. Something a lot of athletes fail to recognize, says former Super Bowl winning linebacker Jonathan Vilma. And I think that a lot of athletes, because... We are the top of the top in whatever sport, right? If uh, we made a professional tennis player, that means we're the best of the best in tennis, best of the best in basketball, football, whatever it is, that they see failing as being vulnerable or uh, they messed up somehow or they didn't do right. And so to keep themselves in this kind of bubble of success, they just put a bunch of yes men around them, they they don't seek to continue to grow mm-hmm. outside of sports. And also because once you've been doing something for so long and if you're playing at the elite level, it's been a while since you were a novice at anything. Exactly. And not good at anything. So I tell tell guys now, look, you have been a great football player for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. Well, for those 15 years, and now you want to get into real estate. Well, for those 15 years, there was someone that was just as good as you in the equivalent of real estate. And that's what they did all day, every day for 15 years. So you can't expect that you're just gonna now retire from football and be, boom, I'm, I'm the next real estate mogul. Like, it doesn't work that way. You, you have to learn, you have to take your lumps just the same way they take their lumps. And frankly, you can take their advice. And that's what I mean by not being the smartest one in the room because you may think you have a great deal you show it to this person who, by the way, has way more experience than you, and they rip it to shreds, and now you feel bad. Well, why would you feel bad? They're helping you. That's the whole point of mm-hmm. not having these yes-men around you. Being patient and realizing how slow and methodical the process is in the business world is something volleyball legend and entrepreneur Gabby Reese learned very early in her career. My hope for all athletes would be to really enjoy it and and put all they have into it. So when it is in the rearview mirror, they're not sort of having regret or pain that it's over. But believe in that formula, believe in themselves that they can take the things that they've learned and 
apply it into something new, but they just have to put the effort. Right. You know, and that takes, by the way, that humility mm-hmm. and a little bit of thought. Like you have to be thoughtful. You have to think about things and you and have creative. to ponder yeah. and try and fail and, and all those things. But I, I liken it to like going to practice. And I always said like your coach wouldn't say to you, so listen, your down the line shot is perfect. Let's do that all practice. No, they'll say your cut shot sucked. I'll give you your statistics from the last game. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing. <laughs> and then when you have the ability to take whatever it is and go, I'm going to work on that that weakness, that thing. I think that can help you navigate almost any scenario in life. Things take time. That's the other thing I've learned as an entrepreneur. So I've been doing businesses since my late 20s. And what you realize too, if you have an idea, start now because it's going to take about five years. That's the other thing. Amen to that. That I've learned. And it's not like, why didn't this happen? It's like, oh no, yeah, this takes a minute. So I think there's another part of me that's learned that part of it. So I'm always like, and again, not moving in a, in an unorganized or frenetic way because that doesn't get anything done, but being sure, creating a strategy and a pathway and then saying systematically, how am I going to get that done and adjusting and learning as you go, adapting quickly. And, uh, and I think that that keeps me interested because mm-hmm. I'm interested in being different, hopefully in a year than I am today. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always say, especially as a female, right? Like I'm never going to be younger So is it possible I could be smarter or I could be more relaxed or I could be less reactionary or more direct? You know, it's like, could I develop these other things to a higher level? Leaning on one's athletic experience and trusting that formula is what's allowed former NFL linebacker Walter Powell Jr. to thrive in the tech space. Walter was named one of the Forbes 30 Under 30 this year after he launched an app called Politoscope, aimed at helping educate voters through factual, unbiased, and easy-to-understand political information. Also, you mentioned that football has prepared you for the tech space, which is, you know, we're we're kind of exaggerating, but it's 99% white, you know, Uh, is predominantly white males. No, you're not exaggerating. It is. Oh, is it? 99% white and the other 1% is women and minorities. I didn't realize that was an actual stat. I thought it was just hyperbolic. It's it's ridiculous. So that's actually kind of sad that it's super sad just because it's like, it lets you know, like just where society is headed. Just like they really try to, and I ain't going to say they, but it's just like, just really trying to just get pushed out of that realm. Cause that's what I mean. That's where everything is tech. That's where a lot of the money is in tech, tech and real estate. That's where a lot of the money is. So it's like, um, you just see, I mean, it's right there in the numbers. Yeah. I mean, that's really unfortunate. I mean, that's actually kind of scary, especially if that's an implication for the future. But you said that football has prepared you for the tech space. And I'm so curious, how is that? Because when you're, you know, when you're pitching, you're in front of venture capitalists and all of them are older white males. Mm -hmm. So how did football prepare you for that? Football has put me in a lot of uncomfortable positions, dealing with a lot of adversity, just from a mental and physical standpoint. But just football has prepared me just, uh, giving me confidence, even though I don't know fully what I'm doing, but I know I'm just, I'm just doing it. Just, just going and just, we just going to roll with it from there. Just being able to just, um, just react, just, just being able to, uh, put together a team and just build, I'm big on just team camaraderie. So being able to just 
feel and see who's the best pieces to complete this puzzle. So I feel like that's definitely contributes to playing football or playing any sport because you just want to pick the best people. And on top of that, I just know that I'm not no tech guy to the T, so I'm going to bring somebody in who's a tech guy. Mm. I'm not no uh, developer, so I'm going to bring somebody in who's a developer. I'm not expert fundraiser, so I'm going to bring in all the pieces where I'm lacking so that we can be each other's you know, crutches where where one person has a weakness, another person has a strength, and it goes around a table, around mm. a circle, we constantly holding each other up. So. Just like Walter, retired NBA player Dante Jones discovered his life purpose within the tech space. Dante is currently the senior managing partner and vice president of Pearl Homes, a company that builds affordable, sustainable, smart home communities. He's also the CEO of All Stars Media Group, a company looking to use artificial intelligence properties to connect athletes and fans. So to all the athletes listening out there, that passion that you have or had for your sport, yes, it can be replicated and found elsewhere. Um, don't be afraid to try to find other things that you could possibly give the same energy to. I knew that in, in both these projects that, that, that I work on, they wake me up out of the bed just like they did, like basketball did. And that's what I do. I love basketball. And the first thing I thought about every morning was, what am I going to do to be better at that? What am I going to be? What am I going to do with my day to be more competitive, to be sharper, to be better? Now that I have these two things that I have in my life now, I wake up with this. I can't even sleep sometimes. And because I, my mind is working, I'm trying to be better at the service that I'm providing, wherever, wherever I have to provide it at, the different ideas, the different things. This is something that gets me up out of bed. And that's my, that's my, that's my second passion. And that's all I wanted. So don't be afraid to try to find that second passion because it does exist. And you can still have that same attitude that you have toward the sport that you give the majority of your life to. People don't understand that we give our lives to these sports. All these athletes you just heard from, Andy Roddick, Gerald Henderson Jr., Jonathan Vilma, Gabby Reese, Walter Powell Jr., Dante Jones, they all found a way to trust the formula and apply the lessons they learned in sport to the next chapter of their lives. There was a lot of good information there to ingest, but my three biggest takeaways were, number one, start your transition early. So whether you're moving into a new career, startup, or just the next phase of your life, it's important to begin that process sooner rather than later and to do it while you're at your old job because it takes time. And that's lesson number two, be patient. It takes time to figure out what you want to do next and it takes time to launch a brand new concept. If you're impatient like I am, (laughs) this lesson is a tough one to swallow. But once you realize how long everything really takes, it'll allow you to settle down and stay focused. And if you're doing something you love, it won't feel long. And that's lesson number three. Find something you are passionate about. While that may sound very simplistic and cliche, it's so damn true. It is one of the hardest things to do in life. Finding your life purpose and finding a way to make that life purpose your job or career. Now, looking back at all the interviews I did, it's interesting to see how so many of these athletes are either in the startup space or tech world. So that got me thinking about the times that we're in right now, which is 
seeing tons of not just former athletes, but big time celebrities using their platform as a way to get involved in some of the hottest companies in the world, many of them in the tech world. Forbes senior editor Zach Greenberg recently came out with a book that touches on this exact topic, the intersection between A-listers in Hollywood and A-listers in Silicon Valley. Joining the show right now, Zach Greenberg. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show. You just came out with your fourth book, A-List Angels, How a Band of Actors, Artists, and Athletes Hacked Silicon Valley. Congratulations on this. Uh, Just for a quick summary for those who haven't read the book yet, what is this about? Basically, it is about this trend that has happened over the past decade or so where athletes and entertainers have kind of flipped the script. So going from being employees to being owners uh, of of the platforms that, you know, they they um, inhabit and also, you know, platforms that are adjacent. So, you know, it's not just musicians getting stakes in Spotify or athletes getting pieces of. I don't know, vitamin water. Uh, it's, it's you know, all those groups getting into other companies like Uber and Airbnb long before they go public. And at the same time, kind of, you know, changing over from being a class of laborers paid in cash to being, you know, um, you know, potentially uh, creating some form of generational wealth that'll be there long after their playing days or uh, acting careers are over. Yeah, I kind of let out a little giggle right at the very end because when you were talking about rich uh, being rich versus wealthy, I know in your book uh, you brought up Chris Rock's little bit about um, I don't remember the exact words and I'm totally going to botch it, but he he kind of made a joke about Shaq, you know, saying Shaq is rich, but the guy who writes his checks uh, that's that's wealth. Um, and talking to a lot of these athletes, you know, that's that's the goal for them is to not just cash in during their 20s and 30s, but to create a certain time of type of wealth that lasts for many years, uh, really until their days are done, but also creating generational wealth. But, you know, I have a copy of your book and I read through it and it's it's really, really interesting. And I'm not just saying that, but it's it's interesting oh, because, you. yeah, it's interesting because it's an area that is definitely out of my scope of education and understanding. And when I first saw the title, I thought to myself, I was like, wow, this is a very unique, but also a very specific topic. I wonder <laughs> why he wrote about this. But then as I started to read through and understand more about your experience and what you cover through Forbes, but also your background as a child actor, it made so much, so much sense. But what, at what point did you say to yourself, like, I have to write a book about this? Yeah. So I was in a movie called Lorenzo's Oil when I was a kid. It came out in 1992 and, uh, starred Nick Nolte and Susan Saranda and I played Lorenzo and uh, suffice to say, nobody was coming up to me afterwards and asking me to invest in Google pre-IPO. Um, <laughs> so I didn't get this idea really until, uh, you know, I, I'd say the, probably like shortly after I wrote a cover story in 2016 about Ashton Kutcher mm-hmm. and how he had um, kind of gone from playing this ditzy guy on, you know, that 70s show and Dude, Where's My Car?, to to uh, investing in startups and, and racking up these stakes in Uber and Airbnb, Warby Parker, Pinterest, etc. Uh, long before they were you know these huge companies that we all know. And 
And, um, and then I realized I'd kind of been reporting this book for basically my entire career. Um, starting with 50 cent, you know, taking a equity stake in vitamin water in the late aughts instead of doing a cash endorsement deal, uh, doing a cover story for Forbes on Justin Bieber and how he was investing in, uh, startups like Spotify back in, you know, I think it was 2012 he started. Uh, and then, you know, just all these stories you hear this and that, um, an athlete, you know, taking, uh, maybe an equity stake with body armor or something like that instead of a cash payment. And, um, and, and I'd been kind of just following it all along and, and I realized that nobody had ever really put together a book about it or this entire phenomenon. Mm. And, uh, you know, just, I guess that's kind of how my books come together. I'm, I'm reporting and reporting and reporting on, on something. And I realized that it's a trend or a big story that, that kind of deserves to be, you know, codified into something that, you know, that, that is going to, that's going to really tell the full story, uh, of, uh, of a trend that that's really impacting things out there. Yeah. You can tell that there is a good decade worth of work in your, in your book, because there's so many different stories and you do a really good job of tying all these different stories and, and journeys together. And, you know, you're, you talk about Justin Bieber and Shaq and Joe Montana, Tony Gonzalez on the athletic side, uh, you know, J-Lo, Serena, I mean, just a slew, uh, Dre, Jay-Z. I mean, there's so many celebs that you've profiled and chronicled and you were able to put this all in, in you know, two to 300 page book. And it's it's really interesting. I think the way I want to spin our conversation is because I know there's going to be a not only just a lot of athletes and people from the sports world listening to this with the perspective of like, okay, what can I learn from this? But also a lot of different small business owners and leaders throughout there, or even if you're not any one of those things, even if you're not in sports or an entrepreneur, I think hopefully we can distill some of these things down so people can take away some of the things that um, you know a lot of these A-list celebs have learned. But you've written about so many, I mean, the name, the list goes on. I want you to not be shy in listing all of the A-list celebs that you've chronicled from Justin Bieber to Dr. Dre, Michael Jackson, Joe Montana. But from a macro perspective, what are some of the commonalities that you've noticed uh, that that they all share? Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that really sticks out, and, and that's not just entertainers and athletes, but, you know, some of the entrepreneurs and, and billionaires and, and such who I've interviewed uh, over the years for Forbes profiled and written features on, um, a lot of them don't really sleep, uh, which, you know, <laughs> really? I, I, not something I yeah, I wouldn't really recommend that, especially, you know, in these times, um, you know, everybody get your rest, <laughs> keep that immune system up. But yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, from Richard Branson to Diddy, um, you know, you, you see a lot of folks like this who, who uh, people around them will, will tell you they're, you know, they're the, they work well into the night and they're the first one in the office in the morning. And, um, <laughs> you know, maybe they sleep three or four hours a night, they sleep on planes, whatever. And, you know, uh, it, but it, when you think about it, I mean, if you are somebody who can operate that way, you just have so much more time. I mean, you have like, you know, if you are sleeping four hours a night instead of eight hours and, and you, and that really works for you and you're not a mess, you know, you're, you, you know, there's <laughs> almost, uh, I mean, that's like a whole extra day's worth of, 
time that you have every week. Um, I'm destined to, to not necessarily fall that. into this because I love my sleep. So I'm already, you know, <laughs> that's stacked, the odds yeah. are stacked against me then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think that's definitely one thing that I see um, periodically. Uh, you know, again, wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but, um, I think that, you know, another, another thing I would point out is, um, you know, some of the, the best and brightest entrepreneurs, um, you know, whether they're well known or not, uh, uh, in mainstream circles are ones who ask questions. And by that, I mean, you know, when you're going in and trying to figure out a new type of space, um, to invest in or, or start a company in or, or what have you, uh, just, just, you know, asking the dumb question, I mean, the question, maybe not dumb questions. You think they're dumb questions and, and maybe that leads you w- w- would typically lead you to not ask the questions because you don't want somebody to think it's a dumb question. Um, but you ask it anyway. And that was one of the, the big things in the book, um, that I focused on and, you know, Ashton Kutcher, when he started investing in startups in, in the late aughts, uh, and early 2010s, you know, he didn't quite know what he was doing. He just thought, well, you know, I saw what 50 Cent did. I saw that he got this great payment by taking equity instead of cash when, you know, when the thing, when vitamin water uh, got sold to Coca-Cola and 50 Cent walked away with $100 million, Ashton Kutcher's like, let me go and, and, you know, talk to some of these startups in Silicon Valley about doing a similar thing. And, you know, he didn't really know what he was doing. So he just asked lots of questions. And, you know, of course he didn't know what was going on because he was an actor and, and, and these were startups, but, um, he, he had the smarts to, to be able to interpret and analyze the information he was given. Um, and, you know, and, and really kind of build his own expertise, um, in this, in this incredible way. So, um, you know, I think, I think that's a great lesson. Uh, You know, you don't have to be too proud, um, especially, you know, when you're learning a new business and you have all these acronyms being thrown at you, um, like, you know, what does that mean? What is a, I don't know, what's a, a PE ratio? What's, a, what's, what's a, you know, cap table, um, this jargon and, uh, all these terms, um, you know, whether it's publicly traded companies or, or, uh, or, or private startups. So, um, you know, uh, I think that that, that's definitely one of the, the crucial lessons as well. Yeah, it's it's kind of being a student of the game, whatever game that is, right? And and being very humble. And that's something that came up when I was talking to Super Bowl winning linebacker Jonathan Vilma. And he kind of mentioned that when he talks to athletes who are seeking advice and trying to prepare for life after football, he says, you know, I have to remind these guys that remember, whatever you want to do afterwards, remember that the person that you're going up against, they've been doing it for 12, 15, potentially 20 years. And while you were playing fo- football or sport, these people have been diving into their craft. So you have to come at it with, like, you can't expect to just be at the top of the mountain in one craft and just immediately transfer those skills and be at the top of the mountain in another field. You really have to be humble and um, and make sure you learn from your lessons. And I think one of my favorite stories in your book was about Tony Gonzalez, uh, you know, yeah. uh, legendary tight end in the NFL. And he talks about how he got burned really early in the game when he was investing in some questionable, questionable projects. And, and it sounds like it was multiple times, but I want you to expand on that about 
how he was able to change that trend of getting burned early. Because I feel like that's a story for not just athletes, but just a lot of people. A lot of people get burned and they make so they lose a lot of, if not all of their money. So what was the difference with him? Yeah, well, you know, I think now would be a great time to to sort of issue a, a, a reminder slash public service announcement. You know, even these folks who have access to these incredible deals, they're not putting more than five or ten percent of their total net worth, um, you know, into these rather uh, more high risk ventures. So, you know, all, all you know, anyone you ask in the investment world will say, I mean. You know, pretty much the mainstream advice, the the Warren Buffett approved advice is, you know, put your money in low cost index funds, and just keep putting it in, and you know, bit by bit every month, um, it, it, like, yes, the market will go down, it'll come back up, it'll go down again, it'll come back up, but over over the course of history, over the past century or whatever, the S and P five hundred has returned an annualized. I think it's seven percent, something like that. Um, so you know, over the course of time, that you're, you're your your uh, money goes up seven percent and it compounds and so forth so um you know that that would be the number one piece of advice uh, mm. but but um but I think that's where you know I think a lot of a lot of athletes and entertainers um you know especially in prior years would would get kind of hooked into some of the more risky things and um like you mentioned with tony gonzalez uh you know he had uh, window washing company. Um, he had a supplements business. And, you know, I think when you're, when you're a star, a lot of people come to you with, with, you know, can't miss investment ideas, uh, open this restaurant, you know, I mean, it's, um, (laughs) we all know those stories. And so I think discipline is, is so important. And, And Tony learned that the hard way. He's telling me, you know, he's like, I, I was going in in the off season with my briefcase. I was looking sweet, <laughs> um, but uh, but you know it, it turned out that that one of his business partners um, was you know kind of doing some had, had some shady tactics um, that that got him into trouble, and you know and so Tony ended up losing a bunch of money on on it. But um, you know he kind of he kind of took a step back after that and said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be really careful. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, I think it was, he had a, there was a company, a startup called Fitstar that came in and said, Hey, we want to do something with you. And, you know, he really did his diligence and made sure that the the people running the business were reputable. And, and, um, Initially, he was going to come in and just do a cash endorsement, but then once he really kind of got in and saw how it was operating, he said, "All right, well, why don't we take that money that you were going to give me in cash, and I'll just take it in equity instead." Um, and he did, and and you know he worked on putting together some workout videos and so forth for Fitstar, and and several years later, it was bought by Fitbit for I think fifty million dollars, something like that. And and Tony said his payday from from that deal was you know rivaled some of his best years in the NFL. Um, so, you know, I think, I think similarly to the the sort of restaurant and scammy business opportunities that a lot of athletes have been offered in the past, uh, you know, they have a ton of access now to opportunities to invest in startups. And the question is, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How do you make sure you're, you're doing, you know, you're, you're, you're finding something that's, that's not, um, kind of shady. And, 
you know, really one of the, the more foolproof and nothing's totally foolproof, obviously, but one of the more foolproof ways is, you know, you don't just pick one, you pick, um, a dozen different startups and you put, you know, a little bit into each. And so for a lot of these athletes, instead of putting a quarter million dollars into one of them, you know, you spread it around, let's say, uh, uh, you know, you invest in, in 12, you invest, um, in 12 different companies, maybe 20 grand, something like that. Mm. And, you know, most startups won't just take 20 grand from anybody. They're, they're looking to raise, you know, rounds of millions of dollars. And, and it's kind of a pain to have, you know, uh, a bunch of different smaller investors come in at, at something like 20 grand. Um, but because they want athletes involved, because they want that cachet or they want to have that social reach or they want to have a, like a local, uh, personality to help them expand into a new market, something like that, they'll let, they'll let somebody come in, um, at a lower rate and $20,000 sounds like a lot of money, uh, to most of us, but you know, for, for athletes that, that would be, you know, kind of like a more appealing, smaller, little outlay into one of these companies and, um, and it allows them to kind of diversify more into these, into these different startups. Mm -hmm. And then the other key of course is to, you know, either have, um, a business manager, uh, uh, who knows what they're doing Mm -hmm. or, and, or to, to be making sure that you're following, um, you know, reputable venture capital investors into some of these investments. And, and that's what happens a lot of times, you know, there are these big firms that are now friendly with a lot of the athletes and they'll say, Hey, you know, we're, we're doing this in big investment in this company. Do you want to come in? And, um, you know, and, and when you, when you're in that position and somebody like an Andreessen Horowitz or a Sequoia, one of these big venture capital firms has already done all the due diligence and they've decided that is probably safe, you know, that if you're an athlete, then yeah, you can go ahead and, and, and make your, your outlay into one of these, into one of these, um, small, you know, startups. And, uh, and then, and you can be pretty certain that it's not going to blow up in your face or, or at least if it does it, you know, it, it, it was not obviously going to do that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I think the thing that's really fascinating, um, to me, and this is something that I'm starting to learn now about just the importance of your network, especially as you continue to go through a career or a certain industry, um, but just being part of that A-list celebrity circle, and it it extends beyond just their p- particular craft or field. So, you know, you talk about um, if it's Joe Montana or Shaq, like they're just not networking with basketball or even professional athletes or f- former stars, but they're having access to rappers and musicians and artists and also people in the tech space. And, you know, and I think that's just been really fascinating to me. I think once you get to that level of success, people understand that if I help you, I know one day that you're going to help me. And so there's just like this continuous exchange. Um, and, and I think that's why maybe you see the the successful continue to become even more successful because they really lean on each other. And for the people that are listening out there, which is the majority, including myself, when we don't have access to those networks and we're not getting that type of information and support from a venture capitalist that has that cachet, you know, and and we're getting information about a company before it goes public, what could people do in terms of their network to kind of get into those circles? Yeah, well, you know, I would say even before thinking about that, um, the first thing that everybody should do, uh, uh, you know, that 
a lot of people are not doing, I mean, maybe even most people, is um, if you were fortunate enough to be employed um, and to be employed at, a, at a, uh, a company that you know offers retirement accounts and so forth, um, where you contribute on a monthly basis, most of those companies, uh, and that's to say the majority of, if you work at a big company in America or pretty much anywhere else, Th- th- there will be this option. You you put you know a certain amount of money of your paycheck into a into a retirement account um, every pay period, and they will match in most cases up to three percent. Um, so if you put in three um, percent of your salary every month, they will add. They will essentially double your investment for you. You you put in you know whatever it is. I mean if you're if you're if you put in. Um, hundred bucks a month, they'll put in another hundred bucks a month for you. So, um, if you're not taking advantage of that and your company offers that, then you are throwing money away. You are leaving equity on the table, much as these athletes and entertainers did for all these years before they kind of figured out, um, how to start investing. And, um, that's far and away the number one, uh, uh, piece of advice I would give to anybody listening. And, you know, it may seem kind of daunting to do it now, um, with the markets down and so forth. And, um, but you know, I remember when I started working at Forbes in, uh, 2007 and, and pretty quickly the, the great recession hit. And I was like, man, you know, I really do not, it does not seem like putting money in the stock market is a good idea. Mm. Um, but I was surrounded by, you know, a lot of mentors there who, who, covered this stuff for a living and they were like, just close your eyes and set your, you know, 401k contribution, your Roth IRA contribution. Mm-hmm. Just don't look at it for a couple of years. And then, and then, you know, when the smoke clears, look at it and you'll, and you'll be happy. And, and I'm really glad I did because, you know, it's, I mean, it's during the tough times that, that most of the, you know, the, the best deals, the best values pop up from an investing perspective. And we saw that with, you know, with Ashton Kutcher, for example, when he started investing, um, it was during that same time. And it was, you know, during the great recession and people were not so excited about startups and people didn't, you know, really, they thought, well, maybe this time will be different and it'll never recover, Mm -hmm. but it always recovers, um, eventually. And so, uh, that's great news, especially considering everything that we're going through right now with the pandemic. I need to hear that. So, you know, in terms of getting into circles where you can invest in, in, um, in some of these startups before they go public, I mean, it's, it's really hard. And I guess that's the, you know, that's kind of the point of the, of the book, you know, there are billionaires like lined up out the door to get into some of these companies, into some of these rounds and, um, you know, and they're, and they, they're not being let in because, uh, you know, I mean, let's say things are changing, um, you know, in, in recent times, but, you know, up until, uh, um, early 2020, you know, if you wanted to get in on the next big round of Airbnb or whatever it is, you know, before it goes public, I mean, they had, they would, they had more, more people would willing to put in more money than they necessarily even wanted or needed. Um, cause if you're, if you're running a business, you don't want to, I mean, you want to raise enough money to, to, you know, to, uh, keep your business going, but you don't want to hand over too much of your company, you know, um, when, when you can, you know, hang on to some of it and, and enjoy the fruits of it down the line. So, um, the ability of some of these folks to go in and kind of cut the line, um, and to get into these, into these rounds of these companies that, 
you know, everybody wants to get into it, it's, it's one of the perks of, of celebrity, honestly. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, there's not really like a great shortcut for the average person. Um, unfortunately, other than, you know, uh, I, I would just go back to the, make sure you're, you're, you're contributing to your, uh, retirement accounts and you're taking advantage of employer match. And in many cases, you know, you're, you are getting so much free equity. It's almost like being a celebrity. Hmm. That's great insight. Very smart, very smart, uh, very sane information. Uh, or you could try being a YouTube star. Um, the chances of that happening, <laughs> and you could try to bank on maybe, you know, garnering 3 million followers, but the chances of that happening, as we have all seen, is uh, very slim. Uh, Zach, yeah. thank you so much for joining the show. Where can people find your book and where can they find you? You can find my book, A-List Angels, wherever books are sold. Um, it is uh, on also uh, Amazon and other online retailers in ebook and audiobook and, uh, uh, you know, social distancing friendly formats if you <laughs> don't feel like getting physical copy. Um, yeah. And I, I'm on social media as Zog blog. Fantastic. All right, Zach, thank you so much for joining the show. Great book. Great read. Um, I, I strongly encourage everybody to pick up the book. Thanks again for joining the show. Thank you. As I said, during the interview, most people, including myself, don't have access to these elite circles, but that doesn't mean you can't get there. You just have to get creative and work on other aspects of your so-called game to put yourself in a better position. One area that's often overlooked by business owners and entrepreneurs is their mental game. And this is where high-performance psychologist Dr. Michael Gervais comes into the conversation. In addition to serving as a Seattle Seahawks sports psychologist since 2012, he is also the co-founder of Compete to Create. Alongside head coach Pete Carroll, who's led the Seahawks to the playoffs in eight out of the last 10 seasons, including one Super Bowl win, together, these two have created an educational platform aimed at transforming both individuals and companies to be the best they can be, but from a mental standpoint. They've worked with globally recognized brands like Microsoft, AT&T, Amazon, Kohl's, they even work with the FBI and members of the military. So during this convo, we touch on why training the mind is so important in the world of business and the ways in which you could develop that mental edge. We'll also talk about the effects of the pandemic and how one could better manage the anxiety and or fear that could potentially stifle one's performance. Here's Dr. Gervais, who typically goes by Mike. So let's begin with Compete to Create. What is Compete to Create for those that don't know? Uh, so Compete to Create is a partnership with Coach Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And um, the two of us, we were, uh, I think it was like our second second year working together. And he shares um, he shares this experience. Uh, I shared experience with him where we're in the hallway. And he says, Mike, can you feel what's happening here? And I was like, yeah. And he was talking about, how great it felt to be in the culture. And he said, you know, we got to just write this down. Like we're onto something here. And he's had a long history of success of creating winning cultures. And then my contribution is about the conditioning and training of the mind as a sports psychologist. That's where I enter the, uh, the Seahawks team. And so, 
So we started writing things down, our individual practices, our shared practices together. And it's like we put it on this back of a napkin type of experience. We shared it with the CEO of Microsoft. And he said, this is awesome. He goes, I'm trying to build a similar culture. This is great. And so basically we incubated with Microsoft support and help. Uh, we took our practices and insights and we created what was an eight hour training. And we started with 12 people at Microsoft and then it turned to 25 and then 2,500. And now we were over, I think the number is greater than 40,000 people at Microsoft training eight hours a person how to train their mind to become their very best, to support a culture that is thriving and animated and alive and progressive and growth oriented. And so that was the beginning of our business. Mm. And so we turned it from an in-person training to an online training. It's an eight week online course to help people train their mind to become their very best. And, um, it's been a, a, I think it's some of my, it's some of my best work, meaning that it's scalable, it's pure, uh, I feel like we didn't compromise the wisdom for speed and, um, you know, it's anchored in good science of training the mind and also the innovations that can only happen on the frontier of human performance. That's really neat. Uh, the word I'm about to use might be too strong of a word, but I don't think it is. It's almost like you and Pete Carroll are soulmates and soulmates. I, I don't necessarily mean that obviously in an intimate way, but I think that soulmates can come in so many different uh, shapes and sizes, but it seems like the moment you guys met in 2012, it was just a perfect match. Yeah, it was really like, it did feel like we could finish each other's sentences mm -hmm. and he'd been in the sport world in football for, you know, handful, like four decades or better than four decades. And I was a sports psychologist for just under two decades at that point. And it was amazing as an a working laboratory, a working experiment, if you will. And I don't say that in a casual way, but the, the hypothesis was what if a head coach and a sports site could work lockstep? Like what could the culture become and what could the, what is possible for the individuals in the culture if they trained and conditioned their mind, both from a um, individual standpoint, but also from a collective and coach Carroll is I mean, he really is, his crown jewel is creating an environment where he's created the space and the narrative and the language for people to want to do their best work. And it's not easy. This is not an easy environment to be in, yeah. but it is grounded in relationships. It is grounded in high regard for people. It is grounded in the love of strain and striving and togetherness. And I think that it, if he was in this conversation, he would say, yeah, you got to train your mind. That's the whole game. <laughs> like everyone, everyone's got physical talents that are amazing and technical talents that are amazing. And in the world of business, you know, like the technical skill far outweighs the mental skill for many people because they haven't formally trained their mind. They are technically so smart and skilled and work so hard, just like elite athletes do. And Elite athletes have an advantage, though, is because training the mind is part of the ecosystem, where training the mind is really not part of the narrative in business. And so working with businessmen and women, it almost feels like a layup, you know, like, mm. because I, most people, when we ask them at the beginning of an experience, how many of you have formally trained your mind? And I know, Prim, you have, because you come from athletics, you know, but it's about 2% have formally trained their mind. 
And out of, let's say, you know, thousands of people, maybe 4%, but certainly not anything close to 5 or 10% really. And so that means, let's be outrageous, 90% of people are where they are as successful as they are by working hard and being scrappy and, um, you know, being smart, but not actually having developed mental skills like knowing how to generate a sense of calmness in any environment, knowing how to generate confidence in any environment. Those are skills and we can teach them. I love it. And you're headed, you're headed down the path that I totally want to touch on because I, I was curious about, you know, I wanted, I want to ask you about the connection between athletes and also entrepreneurs and, and leaders and owners within the business world. Because to me, performance is just performance. I think it's apl- applicable in just about every space, whether it has to do with sports, business, leadership, even in our own relationships, the relationship that we have with ourselves. So let's start off with that. What are the connections between sports and also within the entrepreneurial space and also business space? Well, certainly um, there's lots of layovers or crossovers. But the big one is that we're trying to do something well. And that is the most basic thing is for people that are on a shared mission, whether it's in business or family or in sport, the idea is we're going to try to do this thing really well. And then we're going to try to do it. Maybe it's a fun way or a serious way, whatever the cultural attributes are. But the idea we're going to do something together well means two things. One is we have nobody does the extraordinary alone. It's too complicated. It's too big. It's too hard. It's too nuanced to think that one person can solve the incredible experience that you know um, only the collective really can do. So nobody does it alone. So there's a doing something well together. And in sport, whether even if it's an individual sport like yourself, like you had coaches, mm-hmm. you had fill in the blank, a community that supported you. And the same is true in business. And so there's a shared mission and then there are skills to develop to meet that mission. So that's the technical skills, right? That's the physical skills in sport as well. So there's in sport, there's physical and technical. And then all of us are using our mind to our best abilities. That being said, if you formally train your mind, there's a distinct advantage, a competitive advantage to being able to experience the the mission that you're setting out to do together. Mm-hmm. So now I, the next question is, how do you begin to train the mind? Because I think while athletes don't necessarily have the technical knowledge and skills that some of these other business owners and entrepreneurs have, but they do have all the intangible qualities that help them with that. And that, that's been honed and, and crafted over, what, 20 years of playing sports as if they started around seven or eight years old. So where do you begin with that? Oh, is the question like how how does how how is it for athletes to do better in the business world? Sorry, is I should make myself question? clear. Yeah, it was more for the business owners and leaders and entrepreneurs and maybe people that didn't have any athletic experience. Where do they begin in terms of developing and and honing some of those mental skills? Where do you start? Oh, that's great. So there's two basic ideas. One in psychology. One is the self discovery process, right? And which is to know who you are, to know the person you want to become. And the knowing who you are, it's a life journey. You know, that really does take a long time. But the key questions on the self-discovery phase are like, what is your philosophy of life? And what are your uncompromising principles that you want to 
live by. And just that bit of work alone is massive. Yeah. You know, write them down. What are your uncompromising guiding principles? And those principles are meant to line up your thoughts, your words, and your actions. And when you can get that integration where your thoughts and your words work together and your thoughts and words and actions work together, I mean, now that alignment is very powerful. And so I can take the self-discovery bucket in lots of ways, but that would be a big one. What are your guiding principles? And then the second part is the mental skills, right? Like calm, confidence, deep focus, trusting of oneself, optimism, controlling what's in your control, Mm -hmm. living with passion. These are all skills. And I I mean, we can double click on the skills, but I want to start with a note that if you were to ask me this question prior to the unprecedented experience we're in right now with the coronavirus pandemic is like, if you were to ask me four weeks ago, five weeks ago, what's the number one constrictor of human potential? I'd say it's fear and fatigue. So people are working harder than ever thought we ever thought was possible and not recovering properly. That's the experience right now in modern day business. We are working in an unprecedented rate with an unprecedented amount of access. Mm. And we are not, we don't know in business, we don't know the science of recovery. In sport, we do. So one of the great assets and accelerants for human performance, and one step above that is human potential, to reimagine what it means to be a, a, a flourishing human in modern business is to get the recovery systems embedded in the culture of the business. Mm. What do I mean by recovery systems? There's four basic buckets right? And then there's small little thin slivers of recovery throughout the day. But the four big buckets, you got to help your people sleep. And it is very few people that can do well under six and a half hours of sleep on a regular basis. And that's from a brain perspective. It is independent of region across the world or independent of condition. Matter of fact, five days at five hours of sleep is the equivalent of being drunk. (laughs) And so, yeah, people are not passing the vigilance test at, you know, like a, if you're pulled over for a DUI, um, at five hours for five days. So without recovery systems on place. And again, like we can do things for a little bit of time. Like we're not fragile, you know, like we can, we can figure it out. We're not fragile, but we are finally tuned. And so I I interrupted you because the science is not bearing that. Mm -hmm. And it's somewhere around seven to nine hours. Some people I think are lucky if they only need seven because they get to experience a little bit more waking time, but some people need nine. You have to know your body. Mm. You have to know. And so, um, anyway, Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, and this is public. This is not something I'm sharing. That's not supposed to be shared. And we've done a lot of work with Microsoft and Satya's leadership team. And, um, he raises his hand and says, Hey team, I'm going to compete to my best ability to get eight hours of sleep in on a regular basis. And he's on public record saying, we need each other. Mm-hmm. We need each other to do this work. And it was a, it was a moment for me to say, this is what modern leadership looks like. Yeah. Oh, we certainly need that type of modern leadership right now. Um, I think rest and recovery are that's extremely important. I know I need that. I'm struggling to find that right now, especially with everything that we are going through with the COVID-19 sweeping across not just our nation, but all over the world. And so I really want to touch on that because it's it's impacting every single industry and people within the business world, economic and also financial world, and also athletes, everybody is 
I think fear is the biggest thing that seems to be the most per- pervasive thing. And I think that during emotional times, people are going to make rash and emotional decisions. And so I want to touch on that with you because I want to know how people can manage that fear, because sometimes fear can be actually be a good thing, but if it's perceived correctly and managed appropriately. Yeah, you're, you're right on the money is that there's a real value in the emotion of fear and it's the design of it is to keep us alive and to help us be sharp. When we wear that tool out, it becomes a massive accelerant to exhaustion. And then we start to compromise the way we think, you know, because under a fatigued state, we don't think optimally. And so, and the research would hold that up as well. So, Fear is meant to say, hey, be sharp here because there's potential danger or real danger in your environment. And so recognizing that that alarm system is very important and then using it as opposed to what most humans do is that we get alarmed and then we ruminate and we don't solve. We just kind of circle the wagon, if you will, and it creates a condition of chronic stress. And there's some good research around the effects of chronic stress, which is Um, If we hold on to chronic stress too long, we get into a state of fatigue, staleness, burnout, early death, as opposed to our favorite family pet, our dogs, when, you know, if a dog hears the mailman, so to speak, and the dog runs to the door, it's barking, it's protecting, the alarm phase is on, the hair is up, and then, then the mail person goes away, well, then what does the dog do? Like they'll yeah, turn they around, go. <laughs> right? they'll shake their ears, they'll shake, they'll roll their body, they'll shake their tail, then their breathing goes back to normal. That's like interesting. They, I never thought about like they, that. <laughs> watch, watch your dog next time, you know, like they'll shake it off. We don't. Us sophisticated, you know, humans, we don't shake it off. We hold on to it. So using fear. So when I feel an alarm moment of fear, I, I take time and I think about it and I try to solve it right there. If I can't get it clear in my mind, I'll talk to somebody about it, or I'll start to write it down. And that talking is not to be felt or heard or whatever, it's to sort it out. And so that is using the gift of the emotion to take action appropriately, and to not be overburdened by it. You know, this quiet sufferer is, um, it's a really hard way to do things. So then this is where mindfulness comes into the picture, because this is really important, right? Because so you don't want to get back and stuck into this negative feedback loop and this rumination where you're constantly trying to solve problems. And when you're sitting there and trying to think of answers, the mind just likes to, likes to grab onto something. Um, and it can become exhausting when you're just sitting there with your mind and you're trying to problem solve and, and all of this stuff. And not to mention if you are motivated by fear and a lot of people are fearful right now. Um, a, a lot of jobs are being lost I can't tell you, every time I talk to somebody, there's a job being lost. Um, even just talking about myself, you know, it's covering sports. I mean, <laughs> Wimbledon got canceled. U.S. Open might get canceled. Olympics got pushed back to next year. I mean, it's just unprecedented. But, um, you know, talking so, about... So, Prim, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Yeah. So, have you ever had your back against the wall before? Yes, many times. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah as an athlete and as a mom and as, you know, fill in the blanks, like, yeah. yeah. So you know what? You figured it out. And if you can hold true to the statement that I'm going to figure it out, this out too, Mm -hmm. 
And that will give you a sense of like, hey, I can trust myself. I'm going to trust that I can figure out how to pivot, how to adjust, how to be nimble, how to be strong. Because the truth is, the X number of years, I'm sure you're like 24, right? The 24 years that you've been alive. Um, I don't know you. So however number of years that you've been alive, you have really a very um, important thing to pay attention to is that you've lived in a condition of uncertainty every moment of your life because there is no guarantee what the next moment is going to hold. Like, Prim, I barely know what I'm about to say. And if I don't know what I'm about to say, you don't know what I'm about to say. So right now we're in an uncertain moment. How about it? How are we doing? We're sorting it out because we trust that no matter what one of us says, the other one's going to figure it out. And so I think it's a very important thing to honor because right now uncertainty is high but if we if we kind of cull it down, I can be certain that I can adjust to this moment, and I'm going to do this moment to my best ability. And sometimes that means I'm, I need to just take a long exhale. Sometimes that means I need to think more optimally. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that means I need to listen better to my loved ones. Sometimes that means I need to say something more articulately. So yes, all of this that I'm sharing, I know I'm on like this little soapbox moment, but man, we are strong. Yeah. No, we are strong. And and that strength is really important to honor in this time of quote unquote uncertainty, which is really um, another moment in the arc of our life. Every moment is uncertain. Yeah, I think during periods like this, I've, I'm always amazed at the grit and resiliency humans just constantly demonstrate, especially when our backs are against the wall. Um, I'm seeing this now, especially being in the middle of the epicenter of it all in New York City. And I love being able at 7 7 p.m. every single night so far, at least for the past week and a half or so, you just hear cheers and bells and everybody sticks their hands out the window to give a clap to all the medical workers and essential workers and give them a nice little applause for about two minutes. I was there two blocks away from the Boston Marathon bombings and I went back the next year and just to see the resiliency is literally like a scar and everything heals and, and everything around that scar becomes stronger and better. And so I, you know, I want to bring that up and turn it towards anybody who's listening right now. What could we do to ensure that we're using this time as hard as it is and as painful as it is to use it productively and make sure that we are putting ourselves in a position to handle this where we can be true to ourselves and the things that we want oh. to accomplish. Mm. So there's a, there's a lot that I'd like to say, but I'll be as precise as I can here. The first is health has never paid greater dividends than it is right now. So this war on the coronavirus, there's two fronts. There's the front line and then there's the home front. And the home front is you. It's your body. It's met at your immune system. And no time in the history of me being alive has my immune system been more important to me. And so um, I'm doing everything I can and to bolster my immune system. Okay, so that's one. And if you're a... um, Somebody in a business environment, either you're running a business as an entrepreneur or leading in a large business um, or working in a business, you want your people to be strong. And if you've been running them ragged to meet a bottom line and they're just about to get sick all the time and now this happens, like you might just lose the, 
like some ver- the, the most powerful asset, right? Pe- if people go down for two weeks or God forbid that, you know, they have an underlying condition and they can't beat back the virus, like you need, like <laughs> we need our people to be strong. Yeah. And so how do you build your immune system? There's some very basic, basic frameworks. And I want to, I'll just remind us of the last one. So there's um, sleep well. There is move well, so have your cardio system intact, you know. There's eat and hydrate well. And the last one is to think well. And the thinking well is a trainable skill. And this is, the timing is so eloquent really for the Compete to Create offer because we teach people how to train their minds to think well. Because if you get great sleep, you eat like a world-class athlete, you know, you got your fish and vegetables in place, you're you're moving and exercising your heart properly and you wake up in the morning from and the first thing you do is kind of hit the, the small little panic button and you feel that alarm and your heart jumps and your breathing changes and you feel anxious or frustrated. You're just, <laughs> you're just emptying the tank. Your immune system is going to be compromised by 1.30 in the afternoon. And so the thinking well could not be more important right now. And uh, if there's one thing people can do to, to think optimally is to – um, be aware of their thoughts when they start to get into that fear state or get aware of their body when they feel tense and tight and have long exhales. And then right after the long exhale, like an eight second exhale or 10 second exhale is right after that, find something that is good, could be good, might be good, is good right now. And so that's like a long exhale for a recovery mechanism and then a, a slight shift in your approach from a thinking strategy. And there's so much more to add to it. Um, but those would be the kind of the two thin slices that uh, I'd love for people to get better at. I Listen, I like I'll, I'll be selfish. I, 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 we need everybody, you and I, we need everyone in our communities to be strong yeah. and healthy. And we're counting on each other to do it. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite part of Mike's commentary was him talking about the importance of self-discovery. Because I believe it's important to know who you are and what you are before you know where you're headed. The best athletes in the world know themselves inside and out. They know their strengths, their weaknesses, proclivities, triggers, fears, everything. And the people who know their game also know how to maximize their abilities. And I think that same philosophy can be applied to the business world and just life in general. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. I'm Prince Ripapat. I really hope you were able to take away something from this episode. And just a reminder, this episode was part of the Dell Technologies Small Business Podference, a conference via an all-star lineup of podcasters to share advice and strategies to support your business. You can check out some of the other podcasts at dellpodference.com. Podference.com.